Hi, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. This is a reminder that we're going on tour next summer. Yes, that's right. We're going on tour. The Living Undeterred U.S. Tour 2022. We're leaving on May 9th next summer. We're going to every state and we're raising a million dollars. That's the plan to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. We need your help though. I cannot do this alone. I know there's a lot of people out there interested in this uh, project of ours. You can go to our website, www.livingundeterred.com. We need volunteers. We need state partnerships. We need sponsors. We need as many people as we can to get out there and help those people that need help to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. Again, go to livingundeterred.com and click on the Living Undetoured icon, and all the information is there. Again, thank you very much for the support, and as always, keep living undeterred. Hello, this is Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. Uh, excited about today's show. Uh, this is by this is the last taping in my. Uh, starting off season two, I'm going to be read. Yes, I'm still going to have Eddie from Iron Maiden involved somehow, but banner that I have right now. Um, today's guest is is exciting, and I'm sure my story or is going to be maybe initially a little little surprised on our topic. But uh, as I as I plow through this learning experience that I've been had an opportunity through losing my son and my wife. Uh, I also don't want to be naive and to stigmatize certain industries uh, when it really comes down to choices. That, that's what this is all. Rob and I are going to talk at length about about choices. And I met Rob on. He's got a cult following. Uh, he runs the Drunken Grape podcast, which uh, I've seen. I've seen some episodes on his on a show. And you know, I Rob knows my story. I know his story. And. Uh, you know, I still have a dog named Camus, Rob, so <laughs> you know, you know, I, I am a wine snob, even though I don't drink out. I am, I am what I would consider a wine snob, so um, some shape or fashion, I can learn a little bit, a little bit more about, about wine, but I don't drink. I drink not. So we're going to navigate a little bit about into that industry as well, because that, that is an exploding. And I think for a lot of people, I know you're in the virtual tasting world, and I at it at link too. So with that from Ottawa uh, is my good friend, my new good friend, Rob Statham. Hey, hey thanks for having me, Jeff. This is great to be here. It's a real honor. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And like I said, I you and stumbled into you on, on LinkedIn and I'm not sure what the context was of the conversation I, I invaded uh, when you were having a dialogue with somebody, but I said, you know what? The great thing about this journey I'm on Rob is that everybody has a story. And yeah, I had a, we had a pre-interview conversation. We hit it off. Great. I think we talked for an hour. Oh yeah. And yeah. You, yeah. Lost, you had, you had a lot of death presented to you. And we talked immediately about your dad, about your sister, your twin sister. Uh, maybe, maybe a little bit, you could start off on that aspect of uh, your passion and, and kind of your why in what you do. And maybe we start with uh, the law and how that's been such an impact to you. Well, I mean, that's, uh, there's a lot of aspects to that. It's, um, first of all, my dad was a big fan. He was the one that actually, my late father was the one that convinced me to get into beer and wine. I grew up with him making wine and beer at home. He was a big home brewer and winemaker. 
And um, he had books on the subject. He was a huge fan of history. He was a very learned man. He was very smart. And I was at his house like 11 years ago. And I was in the world of technology at the time. I was in my late 30s. I had a business with an unscrupulous partner. I actually happened to have a drinking problem as well. And he had ripped off a pile of people, including myself and the consultants. Um, thank God they all knew I was the owner. That was the good one. I was part of the fall that they had experienced. So I left that on good terms with everybody else um, except him. So I was determined to do something else. And I was looking at project management because I was immersed in that world, right? You sell a project. The next thing you know, you're bidding on a contract and uh, you're setting up the team to go in there, then you have to actually manage the client's expectations and you have to see how all these things evolve. And then from the people's work, you would have recommendations for further things to address down the road, which is all part of the project management um, book of knowledge or the project management cycle itself through Pinbox. So I was looking to do my PMP. And I went over to my dad's place and you know he was a massive wine and beer and spirits fan. And he looked at me and he said, why do you want to get into that? That's going to be downtrodden and beaten and there's not going to be a whole lot of money in that. That's going to be a diminishing return over time. Why don't you get into the wine and beer world? That's what I would do. And I thought about it because I had a part-time job bartending. So I thought about it. I'm like, well, that could be a lot of fun because mixology is a ton of fun. So I started to explore it with somebody I worked with part-time who happened to be a wine rep, and they gave me recommendations into the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. So from there, I took courses with them. They're by far the biggest global powerhouse in wine education in the world and the strongest. So they're out of London, England, and I tied myself into that and eventually got my advanced certificate. And then lo and behold, I went out and started working on the side with this company called Groovy Grapes. And... It sort of all fell together and it was from his inspiration that I drove into that field. And it's funny, it's probably the first time I seriously, or the second time I seriously listened to him on a career advice. And it's funny how both times they worked out. But it's, um, yeah, so it's, uh, from there the journey started. So with his passing, it was obviously a big loss. I mean, but he was, he was older. He was 74. He was fighting leukemia for two and a half years, and he was pretty tough and held out for quite a long time. And he succumbed. And, you know, it started my journey as into the why continue to do this, because the road of entrepreneurship, especially here in Canada on high tax land, it's not, it's not for everybody. In fact, very few people can really stomach it over time. There's always pressure. Yes, it's self-induced pressure. The beauty is you control all your time and the elements of time that go in that. But a lot of people just can't, they're conditioned to not be able to live without that paycheck. So I are the condition that they can't live without that paycheck. Let me rephrase that. But, you know, he gave me that driving inspiration, right? And he was a fan. He started watching my TV segments. I got onto TV. That's a whole different story. But I had a whole background in entertainment from the cruise line industry and being on stage and tons of public speaking from being an assistant cruise director and an auctioneer of um, sports memorabilia and fine art. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. So, yeah. So uh, you're not the first person that threw that has thrown that out at me, uh, but uh, it's funny. There's a cruise director named Richard Joseph that's a, le a legend in that industry. Was the first one to dub me that back like 20 years ago when I was his assistant on a ship for Renaissance cruises. But they inspired me. You know, my dad 
um, believed I could do it. And I said, well, I'm given this TV spot. Nobody else can do it. I haven't been on set in nine years. He goes, well, yeah, just go for it. And I did. And it, you know, I felt rusty, but I hit a home run with the ownership of that company. And I took that TV spot. And there's a lot of things I can attribute back to family and support and the fuel that they gave me. And, you know, the losses of them continue to fuel me. So warping ahead, my sister, my twin sister, uh, got hit with cancer about six months after my dad passed. And she beat it initially. So she was clean for about a year and a half after she went through, I would like to say, maybe about a year's worth of treatments. Maybe a little less than that, but she had beat it for a while and she had fought stage three uh, breast cancers into her lymphatic system. And there's a history of uh, breast cancer in my family. All the women had beat it, unfortunately, except for her. She had uh, other health problems. Um, you know, she couldn't lift her arms over her head from the age of puberty on. It's funny because she was athletic prior to that and I wasn't. When she diminished, I gained greatly in athleticism and turned into an athlete. I can't explain these things, but. It's weird, but it's exactly what happened. And I think because her lymphatic system is already compromised because you can't lift your arms over your head and you can't drain your lymph nodes around your neck as effectively as somebody who's healthy and strong, she ultimately succumbed to this. And it was really sad, you know, and it went into stage four cancer when it came back into her liver. And that's what killed her. I mean, she was gone in about six weeks. She was complaining about back pains. And then I had spasms, but she also followed my journey and she'd show up on the TV set, even when she was going through chemo the first time around and beating it initially and just staving it off, she would show up and that gave me inspiration. And my mother was the other one who succumbed and was from Lewy body dementia back in April, I think of 29th or 20th of 2020. I'm trying to remember, it's 29th, I believe is when she passed. So... My mother was always a fan of what I did and always supported me pretty strongly too. And it's a matter of this all, you know, I can tell you that it was very hard 15 months after I lost my sister and then you lose your mother, it starts to rattle you again. And it's the why of why I drive to do my journey now. I love freedom. I hate bosses. Um, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I hate being told what to do and somebody's always stepping on top of you with their own agenda. And this is a hard road. So that really fuels me to step forward, you know, and to step up and step out and really continue to grow this. And really, I realize that it's like eating an elephant. The whole thing looks massive. Like I told you, I've got a super busy day today. But really, when I slowed it down, I'm now looking back and I started a little late at about 7.30 in the morning. And then I realized, wow, I've actually gotten a lot done today and my head's right around my huge presentation tomorrow, which is going to be a blast for a repeat client for a virtual uh, beer tasting holiday and Christmas party. Well, I was impressed when we were talking about the idea of seizing the moment. Um, I, I talked to you about Carpe diem. Yeah, my, my only tattoo I have is on my arm. It's, it's, it's living in the moment uh, symbol. And I, I think that's an important part of, I would say oh, yeah. grief and I would say part of grief and trauma therapy, maybe of um, it, um, you really need to to live for today. And I think people, my mom passed away a month ago as well, and so I think it's easy for us to go back, have those memories with these loved ones, but get get kind of um, fixed on on the on the ones that make us sad. So it's the good memories, but it's the ones that make us sad. And so it's like. How do you 
turn that around. Uh, I, I question: how, how do you take those three deaths that you've had and look back on them and not get too fixated on the on the negative and the sad parts of it? I mean, what what things do you do for your coping mechanisms? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've got a lot of great friends. I've got really good family members, the existing family. The family was always strong, so that pulled around me. And I really woke up to the fact that your time here is very finite. It's rented. So, you know, you people harp about the past, and we have always seen somebody like this. Right up to the day they pass, they're always bitter about the past. And, you know, unfortunately, my father suffered a bit from this, and it was a lesson learned that, we can't change our past transgressions or some of the stupid mistakes we've made because we've all done it. But what we can do is control every millisecond of right now. And you can seize right now because you can't predict the future. I mean, you could go outside tomorrow and a meteor hits uh, <laughs> that part of the world you're walking around and it's over. But what you can do is control the, temp the, the, the moment of the present and I think there's a massive amount of gifts by being able to do that and that also does help cope because if you seize the moment, you're like, okay, you know, I can unburden myself of the past and unburden myself of worrying about the future. Sure, we make future plans, but focus on executing what needs to be done in the present towards that future and I find that that brings a lot of solace and comfort to be quite honest with you. It's, uh, for me, it's a, it's a clarity of thought and it's a passion and a purpose all tied together with it. And, you know, I love that, that you, you bring that up with the whole concept of living undeterred because carpe diem is that old Latin term of seize the day. And they were really onto something sharp in the high Renaissance period coming out of Florence, what, the 14th, 15th century, where that really sparked. So for me, that really resonates. And I think... 99% of the world. It's like what Warren Buffett says about why 98% of people fail. It's a little harsher coming out of his mouth. But, you know, it, I think part of that ties into the fact that 98% of this world fails to seize the moment. They fail to seize the present. They're constantly using their present to bicker about the past or struggle towards a future, which is uncertain. Yeah, that, that's a good, a good way to... To, to say that um, the the great poet Horace said, "Non sum qualis aram," I am not what. And if you think of that, really, literally, we none of us are what we used to be. I'm not ever this. You know, I yeah. I mean, almost daily, almost almost hour by hour, we're shedding skin cells. You know, there's where there's evolution going on inside of our bodies that that if. We, um, learn to embrace that and not fight it. We get stuck in this this self-created purgatory of of torture and pain. And I've learned through my my journey, my my book, all the things I've done, which I'm sure you would agree. This is it's a process. It's an evolution. It's it. I think the minute we stop learning is when we start dying. And so when I reached out to you, yeah. I I had. Yeah this guy do and I said well he runs the drunken grape and they're like well, you don't drink Jeff <laughs> so what are you guys going to talk about well I think that there's so much that you do just focused on just the the alcoholic consumption I know your core well, business of course is virtual not, no. wine. yeah your, your core business is virtual virtual wine tasting 
So I have to ask this question. Yeah, I have to throw that, that in there. Sorry, and and beer as well. I'm I'm actually very big into beer as well. Yeah, and I'm gonna uh, and like I said, I'm gonna hopefully get I'm gonna hopefully get you onto some good NAs that I have a refrigerator full of wheats and IPAs, and I did a whole podcast on my top fifteen uh, NAs because there's a lot of people that you know still drink alcohol, but maybe half the time they they, they mow their yard with an NA. You know, they don't want to have a beer when they're mowing their yard. You know, or they fish oh, yeah. with an NA. You know. Um, but then they come home and crack open that nice glass of, uh, Opus one or something like that, you know, um, uh, the timing of your business, was this because of COVID or were you doing this aggressively pre COVID? Because it seems like virtual wine tasting has to be a perfect niche right now with the inability for people to have conferences and big, big parties. Yeah. And especially now with the panic over Omicron, which, you know, my personal side of it is that it's a bit hyped up and trumped up if you're already vaccinated and you've been wise. I would be worried if I wasn't vaccinated, but that's a totally different topic. And we're not here to be political on that stuff. But because of it, just to see the psyche of it. Yeah, there's a reduction even here in Canada with live events now. So again, the virtual concept is sparking up. Now, this was a brainchild at a vision of mine to be able to work anywhere I could want, wanted to work, live anywhere I wanted to live while making money years ago. But I was very much into the live stream of things. Um, and it was hard. Like this city was hard to break into. Ottawa's a conservative city. It's government. So it's a lot of uh, bureaucracy here. And then there's a lot of manipulation by people putting their hands into pots to influence pedal to get contracts here. It's just the way this city works. I don't think any capital city would really be a whole lot different in the world, really, in any democracy. But what happened was... I had some slated events. They died. Um, I was working on videography for wineries and breweries. That initially died because nobody could go anywhere, especially that first five months of the pandemic when it hit from really March 13th is when that hard order of a wall crapped down in 2020, and that's when the shutdown started. So I, like everybody else, was just sort of looking back going, okay, what are we going to do? So I started talking a lot about local wine picks and beer picks because I, you know, I know quite a bit of both. And I wanted to support the local economy because it was so important because these are some of my friends. I mean, some of my friends lost 95% of their business and had to retool and go online. So the fall came around. Yeah, and the fall came around and I was just like, man, this thing is not slowing down. I'm going to hit the switch on virtual. So I only started this about 14, 15 months ago. And after my first short video, it would be likely... I got called out and hired two weeks later for a company, a company called Eldridge Industries to host uh, a beer tasting and it went really well and it was rustic because I was doing it not in a setup like this where things are properly set and I have like a cocktail round with uh, you know, a bit of a setup behind me, uh, a wine and beer fridge to the right of me and uh, in with a podcast studio mic and that. It was rustic. But it went off and I was like, wait a second, I'm onto something here. So... That last year, it really did lift off. I mean, there was about 12 or 15 contracts that came in. And I've been busy into the spring, the summer, and the fall. This winter was a slowdown with a little bit of an odd uptick towards the end. But the holiday season in general, everyone has just gone to hold mode. But now it's starting to boom again because now there's reservations for the next year because, you know, fear is so easy to spread in the population. Politicians love playing that game. So I don't think we're out of this for a while in some capacity, unfortunately, until the populace puts their foot down on it, like the sane populace. But 
it gives a window of good opportunity. And then the other end of it is it's never going to go away now because the massive savings in corporate travel and corporate or commercial real estate is another animal that's going to be history. We, I expect a massive global commercial real estate crisis to appear at some point because nobody's going back to these offices. Nobody wants to. And even now in mandates, a company's trying to bring people back or governments here in Ottawa, um, people just don't want to go back. Their uh, unions are fighting it and saying, no, you only let the people go back a day or two a week, not five. And now with Omicron popping its ugly head up, it's uh, going to cause um, that to continue more of a stay at home work order, you know, as part of a way to combat it. Step me through what is a virtual wine tasting? How, how does it work? Um, at some point, sure. at some point, I, I really want to get into the space because, um, yeah, yeah, because that's a big growing emerging. No, it is. And, and, and if somebody like that as, as an opportunity, not a threat, um, then, then you're an entrepreneur and every, everything's right. an opportunity, right? And the, and the irony is I actually have that in my next uh, event tomorrow is that there's, I believe, three people out of 15 or 16 that are not drinkers. Yeah, so but, but they like to have a series of non-alcohol. Yeah, so, I mean, the talk won't center around them, but they're going to be included in the talk because really the history of non-alcoholic has been around a long, long time. You've got to remember water was totally unsafe to drink for centuries. Um, the last time uh, from the fall of the Roman Empire with aqueducts, which actually filtered out and did a great job of sustainable, clean water being trafficked through to the population, well, that crumbled, right? And the empire fell. So we went into the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. You could not drink water. But what they did drink, and this has happened throughout large pockets of history. Even uh, in Roman times, if you weren't in a Roman society, chances are you were probably Northern Europe or Northwestern Europe. It was a heavy brewing culture. And again, their water was largely unsafe because they didn't have the technological or scientific advancements the Romans had. So... They drank a very low alcohol beer. It was probably around half a percent, which is the standard for non-alcoholic today. It's called small beer. And small beer really saved the lives of humanity, if you think about it, because it gave you a source of nutrition and it hydrated you. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, that whole segment is booming. So to get into the virtual tasting itself, it's much like a live one. The only tricky part's the logistics. You know, if they're in Ontario, I'll arrange for the brewery or the winery to have things shipped to them oh, okay. uh, as the clients. Locally, I'll so have you actually it provide You actually provide the product then? Well, I'll source it for them. And often, in a lot of cases, what happens if they're outside of this province, they, I'll source it for them and they have to go get it themselves. So it sort of it strips my hands of having to deal with liquor licenses and other headaches. Um, so it keeps it legal and viable too. If it's within Ontario, I have the brewery sent it. So, I mean, they're fully licensed to deliver anyway. So that's just a nice tie-in. And uh, yeah, it's just sort of a pass-through. Like, they, you know, it's um, client pays you what it costs and you just transfer it to the brewery saying, well, here it goes. Or you just get the client to call the brewery up and say they're ready for your credit card number. Here's the details. I have everything set in place. The pallet's waiting for you, you know? So that's more the way I typically do. And it's really easy to do. So 
what happens is I send out something like an engagement guide. I call it the engagement guide, but it's an outline of just what's going to be discussed and what to expect. You know, have some water beside you, have glassware, open face stemless glassware, whether it's a tulip glass or an open wine glass uh, or a tumbler. They're great for tastings. And you got to think about it. The rest of this now is exactly the way a live tasting would happen. So, I mean, you'd have this glassware laid in front of you, except it's laid in front of them and we're now talking over a Zoom call. So... Basically, you cover a lot of sensory and you package in the history and the, um, you know, the history and some of the fun facts of the history of wine or beer and the wineries and breweries being presented. So you engage them and this conversation just spirals into a massive engagement party. People start talking about what they're experiencing in a glass, what they enjoy. They start talking about what they think it would pair with after you've given some suggestions. And the beauty of it is, because it's subjective, there's no right or wrong answer. So you can really engage your audience so, so well. And the brilliant part of this is, think of, you know, you've got a um, finance team. Part of it works in LA. Part of it's in New York City. Some of it's in Chicago. Well, it's easy to do a virtual event because you've got a three-hour window between all those points, between the two furthest points. So it's easy to set it up and say, hey, it's happy hour, 4 o'clock in L.A. because it's 7 p.m. in New York. It's still early enough to get off and kick off an event. And you, you put them on this journey for an hour and then you open up to a Q&A. This is just my standard format. And you get them to really engage and open up. And what happens is that party continues online after you're gone. And it's just a great way to do it. And for companies... You have flattened the curve. This is like when email came in and flattened the corporate office and got rid of the telegram and the person who had to type everything and the person who had to carry the letter out to the out the door in the mailroom. Like it literally eliminated the mailroom. Well, this is almost going to eliminate a lot of a lot of your typical corporate small to mid-size events, you know, events up to 100 people. They're not going to go back to the hotels and the lobbies anymore. That's never coming back. They're not going to fly in six people uh, from different points out of that 50, for instance, and that's a common number. You get 10% of your people that they have to truck in for various reasons. And, you know, they do a makeshift training session for a day or two to justify the $5,000 they just spent to fly you and put you up somewhere and feed you and everything else, you know. Yeah, you can just see where this is going. So you collapse costs dramatically. And these have, you know, the best businesses solve problems. And this solves a ton of problems for planning events and keeping people engaged. You wipe out costs. You wipe out the time too. So think about the time it takes for your office manager or your inside event management team to contact that hotel or that conference center to deal with their sales team, which is often clumsy because I've worked in a few hotels. I mean, some people are great, but a lot of it's mediocrity and there's the politics of a hotel or a convention center to go through. I mean, some of them like the, um, you know, some of them like the Shaw Center here run really well on that front, but it's a lot of them don't. So what happens is you also have a fairly high turnover in staff and hospitality because a lot of the positions don't pay well. They haven't learned to fix a chronic problem. So you're leaving that and it takes months to plan some of these things where you can have a turnaround time in, you know, two weeks on a virtual event. It can be up happening and moving within two weeks. It's, I think it's great because if you look at the mental health, the substance abuse, the depression, the anxiety, suicidal ideation, a lot of it's due because of people's inability to connect, you know, um, that we're sitting yeah. here in our house where, you know, it's difficult to get together. And um, I think the, the virtual thing is something that's going to stay. And I would be selfishly, Rob, 
Christian World Non-Alcoholic Party. Um, I tell you why I yeah, say well, that. Yeah, well, that's coming. I had, I had like, that's emerging. Sure. I had like eight friends over that's here coming. for a foot. We had a football game, and I was had some friends over. Well, they uh-huh. know I don't drink, and they, they bring their own beer and stuff. I set out like ten different uh, non-alcoholic beers, and I had people sample them. I had people drink them, and you would be shocked how many people then went home and then ordered a, a you know six pack off the same website. And it's not that I'm, I'm it's I'm not trying to tell people what to do, right? I'm not preaching to people. I'm not I'm not I'm not anti alcohol and drugs. I'm, I'm anti bad, bad choices. I think I told you that I'm anti yes. poor choices. And even myself as someone who doesn't drink, I don't feel threatened by alcohol. It's not the boogeyman out there coming to get me. And so I, maybe I have a, a little bit of a naive approach as a, as an, and I don't have this day to day struggle or battle with me. And a lot of my friends are that way too. Uh, now I have massive drinking problems and uh, they need to figure out their own ways to alleviate that. But if you even dial this down a little bit tighter and to say we alcoholic because I just had an order of non-alcoholic whiskeys, brandies, tequila, and gin and rum show up last week. And I tell you, they're not that bad. <laughs> well, they'll get be... a lot better too. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. No, you're right. So... I mean, the global market of alcohol is massive. It's near, it's probably close to a trillion dollar market globally. Um, beer is 72 billion. Beer, I mean, wine's 72 billion. Beer is at least a 10x factor. I believe beer is about a 10x factor to that. Um, so you're looking at near three quarters of a trillion dollars. And then we haven't even gotten into the spirits market yet or the ready to drink market or cocktails in a can and all sorts of things. And that's sales. To put it in perspective, there's more revenue in beer sales, I believe, worldwide per year, while well, far more than all the big tech companies combined and all the product they move. Put that is so if you yeah, if you take a look at probably the dollar value of all the breweries and wineries in the world, it would eclipse almost every piece of business. It's insane. So for me to say that, wine has encountered its first dip in a very long time in that global picture of revenue. Um, It's because people are moving um, somewhat. I mean, beer has definitely grown, especially on the craft side. But what's happening is there is now a push and we're starting to see high single-digit to double-digit growth in the non-alcoholic beverage space. And it's interesting because it used to be poor quality stuff. What they would do with beer to de-alcoholize it is they would heat it. Now, there's a problem when you use heat. Guess what happens? You start to cook a lot of the good things that are in that too. So the beer almost it could end up lifeless and flavorless. And, you know, this was propagated during the Prohibition era. And what they used to do is take a needle, inject booze into the cask of non-alcoholic beer to make it alcoholic because they hated the taste of it. And the progress since has been gigantic. So what they do is they use vacuum pumps. So I think the vacuum separates the alcohol, which is less dense than the water component of it. And you remove most of the alcohol that way without destabilizing the rest of the structure by cooking it. Because if you cook it, you're changing the molecular structure of it. Right? I don't know. That's about all the science I know of it. But what's happening is... Even Vihein Stefan, the oldest active brewery in the world from 1040 AD, has never been uninterrupted since 1040 AD. It survived four, four wars, 
I think the brewery is partially burned down three or four times. There's all sorts of things that have gone on there. Yeah, and that's uh, the originator of, I believe, the Hefeweizen or Weiss beer. I mean, that really comes from them. So, and there's a technical institute. I think the Siebel Institute of Technology is located not too far from them. And that's a powerhouse in brewing in the world. Now, I may be a little off there, but I do know it may be another institute. But at any rate, they have a great non-alcoholic beer that mimics that Hefeweizen style. And, you know, I'm excited to try a platform of a couple. There's a, there's a sour beer I have in the house, a blonde, a IPA, and a stout. And I'm going to sit down and try these tonight as I'm writing up my tasting notes for the rest of the things this afternoon. The non-alcoholic space is just going to grow by default anyway, because when you have an alcoholic event, um, it's probably a wise question now to ask, who's the non-drinkers in the crowd that want to be included in this? Otherwise, they're just going to sit out of it or twiddle the thumbs, and they're always going to be resistant to joining your alcohol party. I mean, the facts are at least a quarter of the population in the Western world is going to continue to drink. That will not be interrupted whatsoever. But what is happening is that people are waking up to wiser choices or drinking more but less. That's always been my theme, drink far better it's better you're better off to drink far better quality alcohol and probably a lot less of it than the cheap stuff that and, and i'll tell you what rob it's the same thing with non-alcoholic beer i'd rather drink a heavier fuller non-alcoholic beer than drink 20 bush na's you know yeah um so that concept <laughs> that concept yeah. isn't you know isn't just for alcohol uh alcoholic beverages it's also for non-alcoholic but you know the funny thing is is here i am talking to you about this as a non-drinker and I also have people on talk about drugs and I've never done drugs but I'm an advocate for harm reduction so you know that that that's a whole nother another bridge over to um, addiction and substance abuse when you have harm reduction because I think the fact that we stigma stigmatize addicts and alcoholics as you know drunks and winos and derelicts and losers of society and we incarcerate them and what we should be doing is giving them another day to live we should be we should be focusing on the worst possible death and if my son would have had a chance to test his heroin yeah. that day october 4th 2016 if he could have had he a chance lived. to yeah, yeah he well he would have lived the day he would have lived the day rob and what yeah, i tell people is day. this every yeah. single day there is somebody on this planet that this is the last day they use every single day Yep. And the day before, had they died, they never would have had that opportunity. So I am a huge advocate. And I don't know as much about harm reduction as some of the experts and the, the clinical people. But the reality is, is that shouldn't we as a society be more interested in saving lives than trying yes. to prevent people from doing drugs yes. or prevent them Absolutely. from drinking? Shouldn't we Absolutely. be saving lives? And rehab and recovery and all this other stuff, but just give them another day to live. Absolutely. And I think even getting into my space with alcohol, it's like one thing I tell people is you should not be drinking every day. They don't care what they say. Oh, that glass or two or red wine a day. Hey, hey, you know, it's like, no, because it's beyond that. Sure. If you could hold it to a couple glasses of wine in a day, you'll be fine. But how many people do that? Because they become a creature of habit. They start reaching for more. So by breaking it up and saying, I'm going to have at least a couple dry days a week, and this is where the non-alcoholic beverages can definitely find a segue into your life. If you, have, if you want to reach for that beer still, 
we'll reach for that non-alcoholic stout instead of the regular imperial stout that's got 8% or 10% alcohol in it, you know, as an example. It's, and it creates a habit. So by controlling it or doing a lot less of it, I think we would have a lot better appreciation for it. Most people would. And there would be a lot less problems, societally speaking, with it. I mean, this is the whole reason prohibition came about in the first place. It was because female women's religious groups started lobbying governments in the 1850s because at one point here in Canada, in Ontario, which was called Upper Canada at the time, there was a tavern for every 478 residents. Think about that for a minute. And a lot of it was the military and the British had a habit of paying the military in uh, part of their pay was in rations of daily beer. This was common. So that was part quite of the that historian. was common. You are quite the yeah, historian so on this topic. Yeah. So it's, uh, well, you have to know this stuff to dig deep, to understand the mechanics of how it works. And, you know, being a live presenter, I have to know this because questions come at different angles or doing various TV spots over the years. You know, it's like writing a report every week when you're <laughs> you're going on the set. So it's just, but it just shows you why. And if we could educate people a bit better on wiser choices, saying, "Hey, you don't have to drink every day on that off day. Off day, enjoy that non-alcoholic beer. Have five of them. Go to the gym. Hit the bike. Work out. Go play a sport." Do stuff that's outside of just lounging around and having a drink because that's a huge part of our culture, and that's not going to change easily over time. But what you can do is reduce the impact of it. And I think that's the first step that's necessary. Some of the issues and challenges are that there's certain people that just can't drink. They, they're, they're just, they turn into a monster. And, and those yeah. people know, they know themselves. You can look in the mirror and you can tell yourself, I can drink or I can't drink. Now, whether or not you can implement that, and end up not drinking. That's a, that's a whole different disease, choice, model, all that stuff. Reality is I look in the mirror and give you a good example. And this is why the Living Undeterred Project is so important to me because it's a research project. It's not a, it's not a sermon. Teaching people ways to get sober. I'm, te- I'm trying to teach people to make better choices, but <clears throat> I write in my book uh, about a period of time in my life when I was a compulsive gambler. And, you know, it got, it got to be tough. You know, I'm a financial advisor and a compulsive gambler. That doesn't look too good on your. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, I'm in my late twenties, early thirties where I had, I had a major, major issue with it. And, but I wasn't hurting anybody. I was, wasn't married or I was married at that time. If I lost money, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't really hurting anybody. I was, myself. well, <clears throat> I quit. I just quit cold Turkey, um, 20 years. And I knew, I knew, Rob, and I knew that if I went to a casino, especially when I was drinking, table, two things were going to happen. Either I was going to win all the money in the casino or I was going to go broke. It happened more often than not. Going, going broke. broke. Yeah, every time. There was never enough money oh, yeah, to win. I didn't have an objective. Are... Right, so I quit. So where I'm going with this story, where I'm going when I quit drinking then, I thought to myself, well, now I wonder if I can gamble for fun. I wonder if I could go to casinos and fun. I've been gambling now for about a year, and I'm having a blast. I went with a good friend. Of, uh, we have, I haven't been out in Las Vegas in like 15 years. We just got back last weekend. I never sat at the card table one time. All I did sits in a sports book. I drank Coors Edge, which is their N.A., 
had a great time, went to see a show, went shopping, came back and I thought, what, why was I so afraid to go there? Well, a lot of it was because once I started drinking, then I drank too much. I overdrank and then I just decided I made poor choices. But I think part of the Living Undeterred project, Rob, is to get people to challenge themselves continuously and keep learning. Uh, I don't anticipate going back to drinking, but I'm also not going to say I never will. You know, as you said, I'm seizing the moment. At this time right now, I'm not drinking. Not tomorrow when I get there. You know, I got to live today first, right? Yeah. Yeah. You got to get past the hurdles of the day. You know, it's funny when people say, oh, yeah, I'll just get to that tomorrow. It's like, well, you know, just get through the hurdle of today. Just do it now if you can. Just tackle it. Where, where's the next evolution of your, of your, um, your virtual wine tasting business and where you see uh, the next entry points into markets that, that would be uh, exciting for you going, going forwards? Well, it's hard to say. I know India is an emerging market. Uh, you know, certain countries are actually becoming more acceptant to, to certain alcoholic beverages than they were before. It's becoming more widespread. Um, I think really on a scalable side, my plan is to grow this into some type of juggernaut. And I'm just trying to see how that's going to work and how that's going to scale. And I'm always consulting with friends who've built eight-digit businesses and things like that to learn from them. Uh, but there's definitely a window of opportunity to do so. And I think that opportunity is going to be here for quite some time. So um, it's, uh, I do see the non-alcoholic space growing. Um, it's definitely something that's going to expand into the repertoire. It's something in a near-term thing that you mentioned that is definitely real. And, you know, from last year to this year, this group, last year there was no non-alcoholic beverages shipped off. And this time around there was. So it starts to give you an insight into what's starting to happen. And young people are sort of extremes. It's, uh, you know, the younger generation, I observe them still bartending very part-time at a hotel. Um, they either come up and ask you for a non-alcoholic drink or they're asking for the bucket of beer or the pitcher. <laughs> so it's kind of like more my end. When I was in university, I wanted the pitcher. But there's also socially... Yeah, and I think socially, because the world's more integrated now and religiosity is more integrated, what is happening is there's much more of a tolerance towards people who will go to a bar and ask for a non-alcoholic drink. Like, listen, if somebody comes to the bar and they say, hey, Rob, can you make me a Caesar, but I want it non-alcoholic? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be just about as good as the alcoholic one. The only difference is you'll walk away after five of those. The other, you might have to go to the bathroom, but the other guy is going to be staggering. You know, and your uh, and your wallet's gonna also probably be about seventy percent uh, heavier still uh, as a result of not spending that money. But so those markets are definitely growing, and we can see that, as you mentioned, with the spirits that they're coming along and they're okay. I know beer has definitely made leaps and bounds. Some of it is crap, like you know Budweiser's Prohibition tasted like a cardboard box. I've tried that stuff, but. There are craft producers coming out producing award-winning products now. Dude, you, you would Canada, not believe. So, I mean, you would not expanding. believe the NA beers I have in my fridge. I have five NAs from around. Oh no, around I, the world. I'm now seeing it. And yeah. I did a podcast, my top 15 NAs, and I tell you what, if if it wasn't for the alcohol, I don't think people could tell the difference. I don't think you can tell the difference. The taste, the on your palate, the, the, the foam that comes up, the aroma, the, the caramel, the malts, the, it's, it's, it's really exciting, especially, and I, I'm a cigar smoker, so I got the perfect, I've got the perfect way to fix this problem for someone who doesn't want to drink. I like the get a nice, cigar. Co get a nice Cohiba. 
on a nice summer day, sit on your porch, crack open one of these IPAs I have or, or a nice ale, a wheat, and smoke that cigar and sip your N.A. And, you know, I, I get the good buzz, you know, but I don't get the hangover and all that stuff. And, again, I, I think I'm just trying to find and deal with what I'm dealing with in my life. But I don't sure. want to just go get drunk every night, you know, and that was my way I handled it for so many years. Yeah, and that's quite smart of you to deal with it that way. I think that's quite clever. And it's, uh, you know, alcohol does add a certain sharpness that can't be replaced. I mean, that part being a sommelier and a beer sommelier, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to lay out there. But what is happening is, you know, I got to test more of these products. But as I dive in and research it more, and it really started to happen this week as a result of, um, you know, they booked the event eight, nine days ago. And my habit is never to even lift a finger until the event's paid because then the old adage is, what event did I book, right? It's one of those things you got to pay for in advance. It's like an all-inclusive trip. <laughs> you know, you can't, can't pay for that after you went on vacation. But it's, uh, it's very, it's a fascinating field because I always knew of dealkalized beer existing. It's existed since the beginning of beer. I mean, people fed uh, families on very low alcoholic beer. The monks lived off low alcoholic beer. It was the more alcoholic beer that was shipped off to the lords or the cardinals and the pope. They would, uh, or they would sell it to the travelers passing through because it would garnish the most money. But they would often look after the poor population with these very low alcoholic brews. So this has been around a long, long time. And breweries have always had the capacity because I'm going to use them as a focal point because they're probably sitting in the best seat of the house as far as moving this movement forward. It's because you think about it, the unit cost of beer is a lot less. Um, their impact and reach is far greater. Every corner of this earth drinks beer. So the option to create some non-alcoholic beer and some brilliant quality alcoholic beer is definitely all over the roadmap there. It exists. Um, I don't, I would be interesting to see what they do with wine. That one would, might be tricky. I can't see Camus being de-alkalized. No, it just, um, yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I, I am anticipating alcoholic wines but i i'm kind of like i just can't see that i just i sit around and drink grape juice in a bot in a glass uh, i'd rather just go to my na beer but i was going to ask you um you've probably maybe you haven't uh visited some pretty neat brewery time um based on your knowledge level and your interest in in um in the brewery space is there any particular brewery that comes to mind that you visited that that's kind of like the best one you've ever I drank. I one of my goals was to go over to Ireland and Scotland and check out some of these ancient breweries. So fun. I would still do that, but um, not with the same lens, obviously. Well, I haven't really seen much outside of Canada as far as breweries, but within, I mean, that's the next step is to get to Europe eventually and see all these things that I've read about and watch videos on and. There's Alexander Keats in Nova Scotia that started and popped up in 1820. I mean, it's a big commercial. It's, it's well known in Halifax. Everybody goes to the Keats Brewery. But it's really freaking cool inside. Like you get to see where the old stoneworks of the building, the old foundation itself. You uh, got to see their old style tap room. Uh, you go through a tour that involves a lot of history uh, involved with that whole uh, brewery itself. It was really fascinating. And then you get into a lot of the craft brewers. You start to walk in around the, in Quebec and even here locally in Ottawa. We have so many of them that I've been through quite a few of them. And they all have their own interesting tale and story. I think the one that 
strikes me most. There's two for opposite reasons. There's one that I partner with quite a bit on a lot of things. Um, the owner is great. His name's David Longbottom, and he traveled around the world. He's a tech. He's very. He was very successful in the world of technology, and he put that into the brew pub aspect where his site brews everything in house. And all the food is locally sourced uh, ingredients of comfort food on an international menu. And you think about that, this is the way a tavern used to be. You know, taverns were predominantly run by women, in fact, but they would brew and they would have a restaurant. The only thing he's missing now is the sleeping chambers, but it's just really cool to go in there and you can see his, his, uh, his tanks doing all the work. And, you know, it's so craft that they'll brew a batch and they're turning over what's on the list pretty regularly because of the demand for it. I mean, it's very high. And then you go into somewhere like Bose, uh, which is famous for a beer called Bose Lugtread, which is a mirror of what's called a Kolsch or a lagered ale. It's um, in Van Cleek Hill. So it's like an hour and 20-minute drive from here. And it's cool because you go in there and it's an experience of just sort of having a party. The brewery tour lasts about three minutes. You're not there for the tour. Oh, but yeah. Wow. This, is auto, this is Ontario's largest craft brewer now because craft brewers cannot be owned by any conglomerate to classify. What's the name of it again? Bose, B-A-U apostrophe S. So what they did was they took a, a dairy farm and converted the dairy equipment, which is quite common because to pasteurize milk and to treat milk and, and, and to make it drinkable is very similar to brewing. And a lot of the steps are quite similar. So they, um, you know, they often get an old coffee roaster to roast their grains, um, to turn them into fermentable, uh, sugars, the, uh, you know, uh, to cook, uh, cook those malts in the end. But it's, there's so many fascinating breweries just even locally here. And even in the States, you have a wealth. It's, it's like a 10 or 12 X factor over Canada. I mean, there's just so It's just much popping. Every time, I, every time I travel, we go out to eat or something. It's just microbreweries and great, you know, it's, it's, like, it's like, okay, I quit drinking and all of a sudden all these great beers come out in the market. But I'm replacing that urge again with, with the NAs. But I have to laugh because uh, <laughs> you're going to kick out of this, Rob. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time, of all time, is Strange Brew. <laughs> that's hilarious uh, i don't know how many times you've seen that movie i'm 55 so that movie came out when you know when i was in high school and i had my boys watch it the other day and they now you know they, they tell their friends about it but i just had to throw that out there because with my attention deficit that popped into my head when i'm thinking about canada i thought about bob and doug mckenzie and strange brew yeah yeah, yeah those guys classic are hilarious oh yeah I'm sure uh, maybe yeah, you hear that. You don't. <laughs> yeah, I know that. I, I have almost forgotten about that movie, but I, I actually can't even remember much about it, but I remember it was a massive hit. It was a classic. It was a classic. Um, listen, uh, so I guess as we kind of wrap up the show, if people are interested in hiring you for a virtual wine tasting party, um, I'm are you able to do the United States? I'm sure you are, correct? Yeah. No, I have I have some clients in the States, so I have done that. Yeah, that's usually... I mean, usually you have to source it for them and then they pick it up and do the buying arrangements because as a non-American, it's tough to buy booze for Americans. And even if you're in the state, in the States, every state has very different alcohol laws. And a lot of them tie back to prohibition and temperance that ties back to the whole temperance prohibition era. And, you know, think about it. New York State, for instance, you can't ship booze to anybody. They have to walk to the store and get it. 
I didn't know that. Yep. About half the states are like that. The other half you can deliver end to end in the states. It's so, and then there's just different rules and laws. Some of them ha- are like I know Pennsylvania has much stricter standards in shopping into like local, private, commercial stores than other states. Uh, they have a pretty strong state-run apparatus there. So it all varies differently. So you know it's easy though. You just give a recommended list on wine or beer or both and send them shopping and people are usually happy to engage. The one last thing I do in partner with partnership with a great company called Cheftorial is uh, virtual dinner parties where the whole sommelier experience steps in there as well. That's awesome. Uh, I, have, um, I like sushi a lot and I have a friend of mine that just sold his rapids. I was going to hire him for a, like a private sushi reception or something where he could show us how to fun. make sushi. Love, Love sushi. Um, okay. What's your favorite Cabernet? Ooh, I tend to like Californian. You know, uh, I, uh, I'm just trying to think. Uh, Klein has a pretty good Cabernet. Opus 1 definitely has a very good Cabernet, as does Camus. I've had That's all three name, of those. That's name, by the way, yeah. Yeah, I know. I've had all three of those. And Californian Wine Show used to come up here annually for years and st- until the pandemic. So, I mean, some of those, you get, you get into some very high-end, high reserve, um, small plots of parcels of land. It's like a, almost it's tight, tight knit designated region within the region itself. And you can get into hundreds of dollars, uh, on a bottle there. I mean, even Jay Loire has its site specific wines that shoot way up from its generic, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is what about 20 us, 22 us a bottle. Yeah. I, you can I get actually, into a couple hundred bucks a bottle four, five hundred, six hundred 500, 600 bucks a bottle easily. Or was one of my favorites. I, I was I was really partial to Sangiovese. That was kind of my favorite, my favorite wine. Ah, okay. I, always, I I always enjoyed kind of a blend. And um, that's uh, there, there was a local place called First Avenue Winehouse here in Cedar Rapids, and Tracy Weber owns it, and she's she's awesome. And I haven't been there obviously for a while because I don't drink. But uh, when I did, she would have the the actual um, winery owners or whatever the the term is for those people. But they would be at they'd be signing bottles and stuff. So I have a number of different signed Cabernets and Sangios. And um, that was always my, my Sangiovese. Well, that's the main grape for um, Chianti. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, with Super Tuscans, it's in combination. I mean, there's certain Super Tuscans that are just Cabernet. They're Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. Uh, predominantly because, uh, you know, Bulgaria along the coast has rocky, gravelly soils or Sassiakaya, which is the the home of the Super Tuscan. But it blended Sangiovese in some cases with international grape varieties. And it's funny because it created these brilliant wine styles that were classified as table wine because it broke all the rules of the hierarchy of wine in a lot of these European countries, and the U.S. has this hierarchy too, as does Canada. Any any wine producing power does, and it's because it didn't use those specific grapes that were culturally or historically rich in the area of the specific uh, production zones with specific processes. So the Super Tuscans and under Piero Antonori is the Antonori family that really revolutionized that, 
um, with her uncle from uh, Piemonte, who was influenced by French wine production. And that's how that all came to be. Uh, Giacomo Tachis, or Tachis was the, uh, I believe, the winemaker that had his hands involved in that, the master behind that. But it's, it's yeah, San Giovese has a huge, rich culture um, behind it and history behind it. It gets right back to around the 14th century and around outside of Florence. It's really the Man, home. Man, your knowledge level, the- your knowledge level is impressive. I, I, I could talk, I could talk a long time about this, even though I don't do it. I still, I still have an interest in in that space. Um, and a lot of my friends are always asking me what's it when we're out for dinner. You know, I, a lot of times I'll order the wine because my friend order. Uh, but I, I really enjoy the the fact you've got a lot of passion in this, in this uh, industry. Oh, thanks, and, um, and again, I very grateful you were on the show. Um, part of my is to continue learning and um, I'm sure yours is as well. And yeah, uh, absolutely I'll reach you. What's the best way to reach you? Well, they can reach me on LinkedIn. Uh, I think it's under uh, my profiles. I am Rob Statham or something. <laughs> I created that. I somehow got that. I was able to do that. It's kind of funny. Or they can help the Drunken Grape or they go at the Drunken Grape on Facebook. They can also hit me up at Rob at the Drunken or info at the Drunken Grape.com. You can go to the website. I also have a YouTube channel. You know, I invite people to oh, come you do? in okay, and uh, subscribe to that. I've got the Drunken Grape YouTube channel, and I've got the Virtual Happy Hour Experience, which is some of the shows you've probably watched come from that I channel. I did, yeah. So people can go in there and subscribe and comment, uh, but YouTube doesn't really have a direct messaging system other than commenting, say, hey, get a hold of me. So the best way is really by email. Uh, business email is always the best. Info at or rob at thedrunkengrape.com. Well, listen, I wish you great success, and I've, uh, I'm thanks, happy, man. like I said, our paths crossed. I know you got a busy day, so I'm going to let you go. But, again, thanks for all you do, and I am, again, once you get the non-alcoholic virtual parties going, I want to be your first client. So, Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we can definitely work on that. That's cool. Thanks, Jeff. All right, man. Take care. Thanks for being on the show. And, and, hey, uh, and always, keep living undeterred, man. Absolutely.